but ultimate promise of salvation, not only to the Jews who will trust him, but to the ends of the earth, the gospel will be preached. Again, with trouble, with suffering, with hardship. Jesus' message in that final week arouses anger. And Jesus says to his disciples in the future, as you share in the gospel mission, you will face persecution until the end, salvation finally dawns. So there's pretty um, recurring themes, isn't there? As you read the gospel, you see the power of Jesus. You see his gentleness and kindness. You see his purpose for salvation. You see the inevitability of conflict that leads to the cross, which brings about his salvation. And uh, and as we were saying last night, um, in that way, uh, the gospel where we're told the kingdom of heaven is near... um, is in a sense also the dawn of the end of the world. That's what we're looking at last night with that um, Mount Olives apocalypse. There's a sense in which the end of the world begins with the arrival of Jesus. And the death of Jesus is like an antichrist moment where God himself is slain upon the cross. Um, It's the beginning of the last days, to quote Hebrews that we looked at, at the beginning of the conference. The coming of this kingdom is the coming of the end of the world, is the dawn of salvation. And now we're getting then to this climax point. Today, in our final session, Mark 14, 15 and 16, we'll look at the final night and then we'll look at the crucifixion, burial and resurrection. First then, the final night. Jesus is honoured through this section in Mark 14. He's recognised for who he is, right? That the, the gospel begins telling us Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It then shows us all these people asking the question, who is he, who is he, who is he? The demons are aware of who he is and the voice from heaven, the father, names who he is. But others are taking time to come to this conclusion uh, that his disciples are beginning to realise it from chapter 8, 27 onwards. Uh, And here he's being honoured. 14 verse 6, this woman honours him in a very special way. 14 verse 6, Jesus says of this woman who uh, poured perfume on him, on his head comes up before him and and is honouring him with his expensive perfume, Um, Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing for me, verse 6. The poor you'll always have with you. You can help them anytime you want. That's a quote from Deuteronomy, actually. But you'll not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. She's honouring him in this lavish way. She's doing a special thing for him, not realising that it has this extra meaning of preparing for burial, but she is honouring him and Jesus says, it is right to honour me. There's a special thing that I'm here in your midst and she recognises that. For he is, as he declares himself to be, in his um, in 14 verse 62, uh, before the, the Sanhedrin, I am the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. And you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven, evoking Daniel chapter 7 prophecy. I am the the ruler of God, God the Son, the Son of Man, the Christ, who will come with the authority of God and the clouds of God, bring the kingdom of God that will never fade away. He is the glorious one, honoured in this anointing with perfume. And yet, glorious as he is, this honoured one is destined to die. So this woman, I don't think she's realising he's about to die. She wants to honour him. And so she honours him with this very expensive perfume. This is fitting for me to honour you. So special are you. Um, And Jesus says, that's beautiful. That's right. That's fitting. Yeah. It's an interesting little ethic there, isn't there, that uh, it seems right when the disciples say, what a waste. What a waste of the perfume. That should have been sold. Jesus points out, 
there is a challenge in ethics, quoting from Deuteronomy, that there are times for different kinds of goods in a world that will always have extra needs and, and problems that will we'll always struggle to perfectly solve, we have to hold up multiple ethical goods, the good for the poor as well as uh, the good for honouring and marking occasions of various kinds. Yeah, and so here he says, yeah, the poor will be there, there will be plenty of opportunity to continue to meet the never-ending e needs in this life around poverty. But it's also a beautiful thing what she's done. It's more than just beautiful, it is very timely. She didn't realise it, but she's preparing my body for burial. And I tell you, verse 9, and this is spooky because this is talking about us, verse 9, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, even in a place called Tasmania that they wouldn't have even known about, her story will be told. And we're telling it. How cool is that? <laughs> yeah, millennia later, uh, at the ends of the earth, here we are, reading of her story. She is now honoured for honouring him in preparation for burial. Just as Joseph of Arimathea will honour Jesus um, uh, also in, in preparing for, um, for his, his burial stuff. That's at the end of um, chapter 15. We have um, this burial of Jesus and Joseph of Arimathea, this wealthy member of the council, who also lavishes um, this uh, uh, body linen wrapping and tomb and so forth um, in at the very end of chapter 15, yeah? His death is necessary all through these chapters. We get told this again and again and again. Just, let's just skate through the chapters. Just look at chapter 14. 14 verse 21. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. 14 verse 36. Abba, Father, everything is possible for me. Take this cup, meaning cup of suffering and the judgment of God. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. It is the divine will that Jesus uh, will, will die. 14 verse 41. Returning a third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Look, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The hour, God's timing, in other words, has come. 14 verse 49. Um, Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you didn't arrest me then, but the scripture must be fulfilled. His death is necessary and his death is for salvation. That's the point of the Lord's Supper thing, right? Jesus celebrates this meal, uh, a traditional Jewish meal, remembering God's historic salvation. You know, Christians look back to the salvation of Jesus. Jews looked back to the salvation in the time of Moses, the Exodus. And so this meal that remembered a rescue, a redemption, out of Egypt, Jesus now takes that same meal and says, this now stands for the redemption I bring about, the rescue I will achieve. This bread in the meal is my body, which gives life. This wine now marks my blood, which just as Moses, at the end of that redemption, establishes a covenant with Israel, God's promised pledge to Israel, that they will be his people, he will be their God. They will be a kingdom of priests to the nations. Have a look at 14, verse 22. While they were reading, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink it again until the 
day comes when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. It's a new covenant of his blood poured out for people, his body given for people for a new exodus, a new redemption, a new covenant, a new salvation. That's what his death is about. Uh, 14 verse 46. No? I don't Verse 36. Um, Father, he prayed, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but your will be done for... Uh, as, as God the Son become a human, the human is rightly praying fearfully and yet at the same time acknowledging the divine will, Father, Son and Spirit, that in his death he will take the cup of the judgment of God. That's used in the Old Testament quite often. It's Isaiah, for example, that, uh, it's a strong image of drinking down to the very dregs, the cup of the judgment of God is the kind of picture. Sometimes it even uh, is, is a very um, a shocking image. It's the idea of almost... Uh, feeding someone wine until they're uh, blind drunk and then being kind of beaten <laughs> as they stab, stagger around. It's a really vivid, strong, heavy image. And now Jesus is saying, oh, I'm going to take the cup. I'm going to drink the cup in our place. Yeah, it's a substitution which we'll come back to. He's honoured as the Son of God, the Son of Man. Uh, in, even in his death, he is... Destined to die according to the will of God, the hour of God, the scriptures of God for salvation. And so then he's betrayed. The means of his death is through the necessary but tragic predestined purpose, which at the same time the humans involved consciously chose to do themselves. Yeah, Again, this is that mystery of understanding how an eternal divine being can control things in a way that still allows for human agency. We are conscious and deliberate in choosing what we do, but we will never choose things contrary to what God has purposed. Those two things are true. Yeah, That's how those two things work together. The way we exercise our agency is in the channels of God's predestined purpose. We don't find ourselves doing other than what he willed. A way of phrasing it that... that is clear but may take a little while for you to mull your head around is to say often people will say well does that mean that we can't do anything except what god wants us to do that sentence is actually worded it incorrectly it's a, it's a kind of begged the question technically speaking it's not that we can't do except what god's what wills to do perhaps more rightly would be to say we won't ever do what god wills to do when you phrase it as can't, you're saying like, does that mean Jesus, Judas can't? Like he was trying to, just trying to not betray Jesus. I just can't, do to betray Jesus. Oh! It's not that he can't. Um, that's implying that somehow God, it's assuming God's predestination must overrule human agency, right? It's, 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 it's a question that's rigged. Yeah? No, no, it's that the experience of human freedom agency always will be in line with God's will. So you won't. Judas totally wanted to do what he did. And he won't have done, he wouldn't have done, other than what God willed. So that's the, you can mull that one over. Um, so Judas, 14 verses 17 to 21. All 12, <laughs> all 11, um, as well as Judas, in uh, 14 verses uh, 27 to 31. Fall asleep, wake up, run away. 14 verse 49. Every day I was with you, teaching the temple courts. You didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then everyone deserted him and fled. 
there he had arrest him as the scriptures were fulfilled. His disciples fled as the scriptures were fulfilled. Twelve fell asleep. Judas betrayed him. Uh, the twelve fled. The Jews arrested him. Peter, 14 verses 66 to 72, disowns Jesus three times, as Jesus had predicted that he would. I don't know the man, he says, in fear and shame. And then to his astonishment, he breaks down and weeps, realising that he did do what God willed. Um, as horrified as he was at the suggestion that he betrayed Jesus there, in the moment, in the heat, in the fear, in the pressure, he finds himself willing to do what he thought he'd never do. So here's this Jesus, right, destined to die, and we see it played out, this, like any great tragedy, there's a, there's a tragic dimension to this story, that like any great tragedy has a strength, the old Greeks, the, like Plato and so on, would talk about a certain beauty to the tragic form. What's its beauty? It's its inevitability that gives it that kind of sad, sick, sweet feeling when you watch a powerful tragedy play out, you know, where you watch everybody one by one die towards the end of Hamlet. Spoiler alert, but if you haven't seen Hamlet by now, then I think it serves you right. Um, that, that, that there's something bitter and horrible and, and yet beautiful about the whole thing collapsing. Um, so here we see something of that tragic beauty in the story. I mean, so many of you guys know Jackson Summerfield, Summerfield, Field, Feld, Falloon, um, who came, became a Christian reading through the Gospels. And as he was reading the Gospels really for the first time as an adult, at this point in the story, as he was doing these Bible studies with a, a, a woman named Laura, he was really sucked. I mean, he's a very expressive character. He was really sucked. He was going, no way! What?! What? You know, and he got to the end of the death of Jesus stuff and he said, can we just keep doing the next Bible study now? I want to find out what happens. That's <laughs> gorgeous. But there, there is a sense in which the story is, you know, again, if you do this in a Mark drama type thing or read it with someone who's never heard it before, it, it, there is something about it that is, um, that is painful and sad and yet familiar. And yet it's more than just a tragedy. That's where the Gospels are, you know, I've mentioned Tolkien's, term of a you catastrophe a good catastrophe or it's a tragic comedy or something it it both has the tragic form to it and yet there's this <clears throat> divine irony that enables there to also be hope through the darkest moment yeah um, that god brings about in and through he doesn't uh, cut it off and save him at the very last moment you know it goes right through it you go right through to Easter Saturday. There's a great little play by um, Ernest Hemingway, I think it is, called just Saturday. And it's, it's just three soldiers sitting around in a pub, just chatting, just chatting about just stuff. Um, and yet all through it, and you occasionally get mentions of the crucifixions they've carried out as part of their job. Because crucifixions just happen all the time. It was just that, it was the flex of Roman power, right? Um, but all the way through the play, the way Hemingway marks the, the significance of Jesus' death, it's just one of the soldiers just keeps saying, oh, I feel sick. I feel sick. He just keeps saying through the play. It's really clever in, a, in marking the darkest, horrible, nauseating moment. What now? How were the disciples feeling, you wonder, on Easter Saturday? Yeah? And yet through it, there's hope. 14 verse 9. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she's done anointing me for burial, will be told in memory of her. 14.25, uh, 
Um, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. 14 verse 28, strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered, Jesus says. That's what will happen in fulfilment of um, Zechariah's prophecy. But, 28, after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. 1458. 1458. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days we'll build another not made by man. Now remember, in a true statement of Jesus recorded for us in John's Gospel, chapter 2. 14 verse 62. 14 verse 62. I am the Son of Man and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming with the clouds of heaven. Future hope. So from the last night to the crucifixion, burial and resurrection. That's the second and last of our headings today, the crucifixion, burial and resurrection. As with uh, the last chapter, the last section of this sermon, again we learned that this is necessary. It is predestined. Uh, it is purposed by its fulfilment. That's the fulfilment of God's will. 15 verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Yes, it is as your procurator. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Chief priests accused him of many things. So Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus made no reply. Pilate was was amazed. There's a sense of stillness, of waiting, of refusing to speak. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent. He didn't open his mouth. It's evoking for us, Isaiah 53. Throughout the whole chapter, if you're familiar with Isaiah 53, the we like sheep have gone astray and each one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him. (laughs) The iniquity of us all see it. Um, That that passage is is being evoked here. Psalm 22, which perhaps Isaiah 53 was evoking. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus even quotes it, doesn't he? On the cross, his cry of dereliction. Psalm 22, they've counted lots for my clothing. They've divided up my clothes and cast lots. They've given me vinegar to drink. My bones are stretched out and out of joint. Wild dogs and vicious lions surround me. It's evoking these patterns of the suffering Messiah, the suffering servant, just as was promised, the coming of the kingdom of God, through a Messiah who will suffer as David suffered, through a Messiah who will suffer as the Isaiah promised, the servant of the Lord, anointed with the Spirit, will meekly and shamefully suffer so that he will make uh, uh, satisfaction for sin and rescue Israel. And so ultimately the resurrection is our fulfilment. 16 verse 7 Go and tell his disciples. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you'll see him just as he told you. Final fulfilment in the final verses of the whole thing. So fulfilment is this thing. All through the gospel, it's now happening. It's now happening. It's now dawning. And there's actually a lot less quotes in this as we get into this section in a way because we're meant to just now see it happening. It's now just in real time, if you can kind of imagine you know, possibly we're sort of switching now to a grainy black and white footage if it was a film version, just to give it a sense of like it's now just, here we go. Well, you've heard all the background, you've met all the characters, you've heard all the interpretation, and now I give to you the crucifixion and the resurrection. Yeah. In this chapter, one thing that Mark really rubs in for us is, uh, well, in these chapters, really, 14 as well, 
uh, really rubs home for us in just the amount of repetition of it that he is the king and this is his coronation. It's largely by people who are saying it and don't mean it. They're largely saying it to mock him or to say he says he is the king, but we don't think he is. And yet when you read it with that kind of this, again, the sense of divine irony, look at it from God's point of view. Look at what we know, what we'll find out. You, you go, my goodness, do you guys realise what you're doing? It is just so, um, so fitting. You know, are you the king of the Jews, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the blessed one? He's asked in 14 verse 61. 15 verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? 15 verse 9 to 12. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Yeah, again, <laughs> king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. 15, verse seven, uh, 16 and following, they go through a whole mocking, jeering, a kind of um, uh, shaming um, uh, uh, play, dressing him up as a king in, in a um, you know, mock coronation of bowing down to him. Hey, the king of the Jews. They're laughing and they're beating him and they're whacking him. You know, all through, king of the Jews, king of the Jews, king of the Jews. 1426, above his cross, his throne, his cross, uh, is written this notice, the king of the Jews. For, uh, 15 verse 32, he saved himself, uh, saved others, but saved, can't save himself. Let this Christ, the king of Israel, uh, come down from heaven. 15 verse 39, and then the centurion who stood in front of Jesus heard him cry, and this one is not sarcastic. When he saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. That really rubs it home, doesn't it? Over and over and over again. Here in this bloody uh, murder, torture, shame device, he's been crowned king of the Jews. He is the king of the Jews. If only they knew what they were doing. If only they knew uh, they wouldn't have done it. If only they knew that in doing it, they were crowning him as king and saviour. It's another little interesting thing in the story is how we get shown salvation through substitutions through this passage, right? Interesting little swaps going through it that highlight, again, this, this salvation. In, in chapter 14, we talked about the, the blood that pays a price for the redemption the new exodus Jesus brings in his blood, giving his blood for many, um, and him taking the cup for many, in chapter 14. Well, in chapter 15, we see a bunch of switcheroos. Jesus is swapped as a substitute for Barabbas. Here's this rebel, this terrorist possibly, who should be killed. Um, what do you want to do with him? Let's swap him and let Jesus die in his place. Ah, it's interesting reading that, isn't it? From a Christian point of view. There's one of those switches. Um, 15 verse 20, after they crowned him in robes, they then swapped the robes out, stripped him naked and whacked a cross on him. Yeah? They, uh, there's this Simon of Cyrene who carries the cross when Jesus is too weak, but then hands the cross back to Jesus to be crucified on. Possibly his name and his dad's name, uh, oh, sorry, and his kids' names, um, uh, might hint at the fact that this guy went on to join the Christian community. And so a bit of extra name dropping is mentioned there. So I don't know, it could be. Uh, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Um, yeah, so there's another, another switcheroo there um, with Simon of Cyrene, 15 verse 21. 15 verses 30 uh, to 32. 
He saved others, they laugh, but he can't save himself. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's the point. He is saving others by not saving himself. You see how it's all through here? There's this, this kind of ironic kind of double meaning stuff going on because in 15 verse 34, he is now the one taking on the forsakenness, which is the judgment of God, the cup of God given for him for our salvation. God the Father and giving up his son, God the Son and giving himself up by the Holy Spirit, all at work in this receiving the judgment upon God himself in his son for the salvation of the world. And so it opens up a new way. Temple curtain torn in two, opening up a way, verses 38 and 39, a way into the most holy place of relationship with God by the once for all sacrifice, not just for a high priest once a year, all that stuff in Hebrews, right? But once for all, so much so that he sat down, work's done, we don't need a high priest and a Yom Kippur or anything else anymore. Yeah? We've got it once for all, forevermore, direct access now to call God Father because of this one who died for us in our place, the King of the Jews, crucified for us. And here we go, the very final pages of my notes. Uh, page of my notes. Uh, new hope. He did it so we may go free, so we may enter in, so we may be honoured and crowned and lifted up and exalted. So in this life, we will carry the cross as Simon and Cyrene did uh, and find life in the end so we may be saved by his death. This is all seen by the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead. It's not just a tragedy. It's not just everyone dies in the end. Uh, it, 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 it goes as dark as it can be, but then an impossible new light dawns. An amazing new thing begins. You know? um, and we have the resurrection account. You know, Mark 16, verses 1 to 8. On the first day of the week, like a, on the first day God said, let there be light. <laughs> on a new first day of the week, like a new creation dawning, yeah? let there be. Yeah? And we have a new dawn in a new garden. A tomb now opens up as a doorway of new life rather than an end to a life. Tomb becomes a womb. <laughs> um, and, uh, and we now have him risen. But gosh, it's a weird ending. We talked about it in the question and answer time. It, that it seems that from the, the, the many, many, many sources we have, that other possible endings to Mark's gospel were later added because the ending is so odd. 14 verse 8, what a way to finish the thing. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Do you hear that, church? Be afraid. Are you afraid? I hope you're afraid. And you hear that, church? They said nothing. Don't say anything, church. Like, be like the women. Be terrified and say nothing. <laughs> And we think Jesus has risen, although we never hear about it. Yeah, it's odd. No wonder people added endings similar to the other Gospels. Now look, it is possible that the very initial autograph that, that Mark himself wrote um, did have an ending there, and that for some reason it, it was like It's possible that's the case. Um, but the fact we have no records of that, given how just how constant... These, these Gospels were written and written and written and written and written. And that's, uh, that's possible but unlikely. That given that God is at work writing Scripture as well, why would he allow 
an ending to be. It is possible, given all the artistry that we've just noticed bits of, that actually Mark was a pretty cutting-edge writer. He's writing a new genre anyway, this death narrative with a long introduction. He's in this new age of a new career, a whole new thing is happening. Is it possible similarly drawing again on potentially, as, as Christian, his early Christian writers suggested, that he was picking up on the preaching of Peter, that he actually chose to create this ending as a loop that sends you back to the beginning. Uh, certainly a thing that he does share in common with all the other resurrection accounts is how bare they are. Um, although there are resurrection verses in the Old Testament, Daniel 12, Isaiah 26 and so on, uh, Ezekiel 37, none of the resurrection accounts quote that stuff. It's not, it, it doesn't read like someone creating a religion and says, hey, since the Old Testament talks about resurrection, let's create a new religion, we'll call it Christianity, we'll make the guy rise from the dead, and let's just shove in a bunch of those verses to show that, you know, that it's biblical. You know, it's not written in the way you would write it, I would write it, if I was inventing a religion. Instead, it's written in a kind of, and then this happened, and it was weird. Like, there were these two ladies, and they went down, and they were thinking this, and they turned up, and then it was open, and there were the angels, and, and it was bright. <laughs> And then he, they went, and then he came, and then he ran, and then he went, and then they came back, and then he was there, and then they broke the, uh, the fish. And he, it, it, it's just a describing the... It's, it's, historians, Christian historians and others point out that it's the kind of thing you might expect if this really astonishing thing actually did happen. That this is how eyewitnesses remit. I can tell you, I can tell you exactly where I was. Do you have that thing? You know, like old people have when a man landed on the moon tell you exactly where I was. Others might be able to tell you, my generation, I'll tell you where I was when I heard about the two towers being smashed to the ground by those terrorist aeroplanes. Picture exactly where, I don't know what the thing is for you, I can tell you where I was. Um, McDonald's having a strawberry milkshake. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Another big event. Yeah. yeah tell no, me no, where, I... where he was with them. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course, sorry. <laughs> But there's that sentence that I can tell you where I was, I can tell you what it was like, and let me just tell you how it happened, you know? Um, and then I think, if this is the ending, which we have good reason to think is the ending, then actually, you know, using kind of internet technology, you see it as a, as a click button. Even just that word, Galilee, for example. Press on that and do a mark search of Galilee. I mean, you could do that on your phone sometime. You know, Galilee, you know, go to BibleDateway.com, search for Galilee in Mark's Gospel. And actually, the significant... I mean, Jesus began his ministry where? In Galilee. After John had been put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the time has come, the kingdom of heaven is near, repent and believe the good news. Boom. See? This throws you right back to the start of the Gospel and tells you the deal. He's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the kingdom is near, repent and believe the good news. What more do you want? <laughs> As we saw... Um, uh, the night before last, over and again, he's saying, I'm going to die. Uh, three days later, I will rise. Yeah? And then the good news, we preach the ends of the earth, as we saw last night in Mark 13. We've got everything that happens next in what we've already read. And now we're equipped to go back and read it. Like a film when you discover someone's a ghost at the end or has split personalities at the end or is actually a bad guy or Snape was goodish after all or whatever it is. You go back and you rewatch it and you go, ah, and then you see it unfold fresh 
a second time. The other cool thing I think 16.8 may be doing, by pausing there at that moment, I mean, it's a great dramatic moment, it's great this, this tension point of freeze to go, oh my goodness. Um, but it also puts you in their shoes, the whole of that last little chapter puts you in their shoes. You're walking with these women, seeing things from their point of view. You've, you've seen them throughout the, the, the gospel. Um, you're seeing it just an everyday person, just like you, just like her. You walk into the tomb, and your first response is bewilderment and fear and silence. But what will they do next? And since you've identified with these protagonists in that chapter, the implicit question is, what will you do next as well? Do you see? So just as you're going, well, will they stay quiet or will they speak up? And what will the disciples think? And then what, you know, and it's like, and what about you? Are you going to stay quiet? Are you going to speak up? Are you going to tell? See, again, a final irony, isn't it? A final double meaning. It's not, see church, be frightened and say nothing. <laughs> but it's, will you stay frightened and do nothing? And it's turning it back on us. Jesus is king, crowned by his death, risen as Lord and saviour. This reminds us of what happened in history when God worked in his son. This reminds us of the Old Testament that come to fulfilment like a huge wave crashing, crashing on the beach of history in Jesus. It spends us, gives us time to spend with Jesus, our saviour, as we walk with him through Mark's gospel, died and risen now, ruling now, with us now by his spirit and in his word. And it gives us a way to see the world, doesn't it? What's going what, to... What, our lives, myself, the future. I, I can look at the world, past, present and future, through the revelation of God, as we find it here in the Gospel according to Mark. How beautiful is that, yeah? What a gift that is. What a treasure. And I hope it can be something you will treasure in your, in your minds and intellect, in your heart and your soul. And it will mark the way you walk and the way you speak, even the way you suffer in 2023. Let's pray. We praise and worship you, our Father. Praise and worship you, Son, the Saviour. We praise and worship you, the Spirit who comes and applies all these good things to us, baptising us in fire and power. Bless us with repentance and faith to receive this good news. Lead us to trust in Jesus every day, to walk that cross-shaped walk, taking up our cross, to live for eternity where we may lose the riches of this world but we gain our soul and life forever. We worship you, Father, Son and Spirit, and we want to live for you by your grace and power. Amen. Amen.